welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from Continuum. I can still vividly recall the high school health class where we learned CPR on a mannequin. And for some reason, I remember that the mannequin had a name, it was Chris Clean, and that a classmate made the awkward joke that he'd rather practice on Kristen Clean. Ugh. At any rate, the idea was to practice CPR on a dummy so that if we ever actually needed to perform CPR in an emergency, we weren't doing it for the first time. It wasn't quite practice makes perfect, but we had a better chance of success than if we had never practiced at all. Thankfully, I've never had to use my CPR training. And technology has come a long way since Chris Clean. Hospitals can now simulate operating room environments and medical procedures in incredibly realistic ways so that medical practitioners can rehearse not just procedures, but how they want to communicate with colleagues and with patients. It turns out that operational confidence helps both practitioners and patients understand and feel better about their respective roles. Melissa Burke is the Director of Strategy and Business Development for the Boston Children's Hospital Simulator Program. She came by recently to chat with us a bit more about how the program came together and how it has been helping people. Melissa has a background in mechanical engineering and has worked at several high-tech startups, including Affectiva, where she worked on recognizing emotional states from webcam facial expressions. Hospitals are especially emotional places, and how people feel about their care has an impact on their outcomes and their adherence. Melissa spoke with Lee Moreau, a principal here in service and experience design, about how medical practitioners are like sports teams, the role that confidence brings to patient empowerment, and what it's really like to 3D print anatomically correct bodies. In an effort to kind of understand all of the makers in our world, especially the ones that are just down the street, we were fortunate enough to come and see your facility at Boston Children's a few months ago, and I was just blown away. We're often... Um, uh, very gratified when people like to see our facility and all of our maker spaces, but we were blown away by yours. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you more about it. So welcome to Continuum uh, and to the resonance test. I um, First of all, it'd be great if you could just start off by talking about yourself and explaining, I think, your trajectory to how you got to where you are and sort of enlighten us with what you're doing right now. Well, thank you for that welcome. I'm Melissa Burke. I'm Director of Business Development at the Boston Children's Hospital Simulator Program. And uh, my background is I have uh, two degrees in mechanical engineering, and that's where my career started. So I was doing basic research in corrosive processes in naval nuclear devices, so computational fluid dynamics. And not to date myself, but then the internet was born and I never looked back. So at that point, uh, I started my own e-commerce consultancy and realized that I just loved being outside the government lab and um, making new things. And uh, so I started working for a startup in that field and when my, I met my husband, he wanted to move to Boston, and I had a job before him. So I started working in the Boston area in high-tech startups, and the niche that I found that I really loved was helping bridge the gap between the promise of what a new technology can one day do and what consumers need it to do today. And I found my background in mechanical engineering um, was incredibly helpful um, to finding that niche. So how did you wind up, uh, the, the the story of you actually winding up at Boston Children's and embarking on mobilizing some of the resources that you're wrangling now, how did that come to life? How did that come to pass? Well, I was working at a, a Boston startup called Affectiva, which is involved in software to understand your emotional state from looking at a web camera image of you. And that led 
to becoming involved at the hospital because the hospital's a really emotional place. And being able to quantify emotion in the healthcare setting enables a whole host of new opportunity. So talk about uh, the range of uh, sort of simulations and prototyping that you're starting to create within your program. Um, I know it's, pr it's pretty broad, uh, but if you can kind of outline the, the breadth of it, um, maybe we can go into more detail. I'm so glad you asked that question because the thing, single thread that joins everything we do at the simulator program is fear. So whether it's fear of what you know patients are experiencing or their caregivers, or even the anxiety that the clinical team feels going in to care for a patient, or imagine the fear that, that you would experience um, trying to draw blood from a crying child in front of a, a parent that's, that's experiencing anxiety. So we have fear across the board. And the whole point of the simulator program is to enable rehearsal opportunities to reduce fear and anxiety, to create confidence, and to build clinical teams that operate from a very mature state of confidence and to increase the confidence of parents going home with children who maybe have new life-saving medical equipment uh, that they need to take with them or even to empower the children that we care for in um, making decisions about their own care or contributing to their care. So I'm curious how you go about measuring fear. We do a lot of consumer testing and uh, research here, but uh, oftentimes people are asking us to go beyond the qualitative into the quantitative. And are there, do you have ways to measure fear? So there are uh, sensors that can be worn um, and there's data that you can take, but there are complications with all of these. And... Um, the most important complication when you're either measuring galvanic skin response from, say, uh, a wearable like the Empatica watch, or you're, you're measuring uh, levels of, um, from uh, a sample of spit, uh, what, you're really, what you really need to do is baseline an individual, right? Because it is so individual. Oh. Fear and anxiety, um, any other emotion, disgust or... Uh, frustration, all of these are need to be baseline to you yourself. And that is a big data problem. And it's it's one that I think the hospital makes the hospital an incredibly interesting test bed for advancing the quantification. So to answer your question, we are not there yet. Um, but it's one of the, the issues that I think is most important in the work that I do. One of the things that really struck struck me and my colleagues when we went to your lab was some of the 3D printing, partly because it's it's physical and it's visceral. Uh, and so the 3D printing that you're doing in preparation for some of your surgeries, but I know it doesn't just stop there. Can you talk about 3D printing, what you're trying to achieve there and how that connects to some of the other parts of the offering? When you think of a simulator program, most people think of um, a, a mannequin that they learn CPR on. And that is medical simulation, that's experiential learning. But what the Boston Children's Hospital Simulator Program does is take it a bunch of steps further. So 
we're creating synthetic patients that look real and feel real for clinical teams to learn from. We're creating psychologically safe environments for clinical teams to be able to make mistakes, admit mistakes, talk about their mistakes. We have human factors experts that uh, use these medical simulations as the reason to have conversations around how to improve a team. And so a lot of people ask me, why do clinicians at Boston Children's Hospital have to rehearse or practice? Because aren't they the best in the world? And the example I like to give is a sports team. You wouldn't expect to have um, a bunch of people on a sports team come together and go out and compete uh, without practicing first. And it's the same way with nurses and doctors and surgeons, uh, giving them a chance to rehearse how they communicate with each other, how they like to work together, what's going to make them more efficient in clinical decision making um, is what differentiates the teams that we work with. And so we create these scenarios. Uh, and I like to think of us as the nexus of medicine and theater, because we're creating very lifelike environments. Uh, replicas of exact operating rooms or exact uh, ICUs where these teams natively work and we bring them in and we have them work on synthetic patients that look real and feel real so their head is in the game and um, they're suspending the disbelief that they're not working on a live patient and they're actually doing their jobs as though um, they were in the OR or in the ICU and learning from what they do together and so we have a complete environment where this occurs that's a replica of the hospital and we have engineers that come together to create the theatrical portion of this if if you will and that's where the 3d printing uh, comes into play there was a moment when when we were in the lab and i, I some of these prototypes feel seem so lifelike it's frightening and, you know one was sort of the looked like it was the age of my son and i was you know, you do a double take and you really think you're seeing a person. So I felt like a Stan Winston sort of Hollywood caliber uh, makeup and magic shop. Um, is it how, why is it important uh, that it be so lifelike? Um, and I, I'm sure you have a great answer to this, but I'm, I'm curious because um, you've really dialed that up to 11. Um, so talk <laughs> about trying to push the boundaries of that. Yeah, absolutely. So um Having a patient that looks real and feels real is very important as far as becoming emotionally engaged in the work that you're doing. So let me give you an example. Uh, when when parents are trained um, on how to uh, clean or um, work with a, a, a tracheostomy on their child, the best the market has out there is a doll that looks nothing like what you're going to experience when you see a hole in your in, in your child, right? And you can see into the body. Um, and that's a pretty emotional thing to experience. Um, and, and it's the same for surgical teams that are going to put a child on heart-lung bypass. And it's the same for... Um, uh, for our nurses that are going to draw blood um, on, on, a, on a screaming child, right? So um, these are e emotional situations that if you um, 
if you are just practicing on a doll, it's not going to be nearly the same as if you are if you are really taken into an experience that is lifelike. You're going to be so much better prepared to handle emergency situations or to handle the stress that's going to come with that. Not only that, um, it's it's incredibly hard sometimes to prove to people that this type of training is going to be valuable until they do it. And having a synthetic patient that looks real is actually a motivating factor to bring the whole team together. So if we talk about this kind of training from a human factors perspective, you might encounter silos of people. You might encounter people who don't want to be taught. You might want to, you might encounter people who feel they know it all. You might encounter people who, um, who feel that, that the training is just, you know, all of us have gone into training where we're just sort of sigh and roll our eyes and say, oh gosh, here we go again. I've got to, I've got to do this, right? Uh, but when you have a patient that looks real, fundamentally what happens to that clinical team, regardless of where their head is at when they come in, they come together for the benefit of that patient. They drop their egos. They drop any preconceived notions of what that training is going to be about. And it gets them in the into learning into that mode into the mode of critical thinking and it really snaps people out of the ho-hum of maybe taking a training which sounds boring anyway right um, and it really uh, is a motivating factor to bring people together to cut across all the silos they typically work in uh, to come together for a really different kind of learning experience so it's it's interesting because you're you're when you're talking about the trying to invoke real emotions on the part of your highly trained and extremely confident world class professionals. Um, there's still a part of me that's like you know, empathy should be core to that experience. And knowing Boston Children's, I know it's there. But on the other hand, I think of some of the what's happening in the in the healthcare space, the sheer volume, the mass. Um, which is maybe pulling us away from some of those emotions and empathy. So is in some sense, the simulation lab intended to kind of spur just that, like spur this empathy, spur this emotion and reconnect us to our jobs? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if I could take you into a debriefing. So all of the technology that we use to create synthetic patients, it's just an excuse to have a conversation, right? So that's where the magic happens. And if I could take you into uh, one of those debriefings, it, it would really amaze you to see how people say, you know, we've worked together for five years and every time you call for a stat this or that, I'm really not quite sure what you mean, right? Um, to have people admit that, um, or for, for a surgeon to say, uh, you know, I became fixated on solving this one part of the problem, and I needed you, my team, to bring this other thing up to me faster. How do you think we could we could reorganize ourselves um, so that that might happen? So um, talking about making a mistake, you know, owning, becoming fixated on one part of a problem and asking the team for help, those kinds of things don't happen every day. Um, and when they do, it's, it's amazing. It, I treat it with such great respect. It's why I can't play a recording of that for you because we have to really uh, preserve the, the those conversations in the room where they happen. And uh, you know that's one thing that I really love about working at Boston Children's Hospital is because from the very top, 
not just a medical simulation, but the very top of the executive team, they're setting a culture where it's okay to learn from your mistakes. Not only is it okay to learn from your mistakes, but that's where the true value happens. And in, in example after example, our senior executive team, our C-level executives at the hospital demonstrate that it's not only okay to have a dissenting opinion, but, but that dissenting opinion's valued, even though it might be in the minority and, and might not be, um, uh, it might be challenged by a lot of people, you're going to be given the opportunity to express that in a non-judgmental environment. It's just a really beautiful um, culture to set at the hospital level, and then also to be able to continue into um, the simu simulation world. And where we're taking this in the future is debriefing live events. So imagine how safe clinicians have to feel to agree to have their daily work um, observed on video. Um, and to set up the um, environment where you have the destruction policy and who can view that video and how gingerly you treat the team that's participating in that. Um, and it's, it's, it's really magical and it really creates um, an environment where a team can be the best it can. It's incredible that you're talking about this openly because we have a lot of clients um, and we you know there's a culture of uh, in, in a, a lot of advanced corporations and organizations that, oh, we need to fail fast and we, to get mature, we need to be comfortable with failure, but they don't actually create the infrastructure in which it's okay to do that. So failing fast means failing badly or, or maybe not recovering or learning from that failure. And it seems like you've put all those tools into place. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you an example. Uh, so one of the ways that we apply medical simulation is in the testing of new clinical spaces. And we can do this pre-construction. So when it's in the design phase, and as you might be aware, we're building a new building at Boston Children's Hospital, and it won't be complete for five years. But two years ago, we started testing in cardboard. Things like, is a 20 square meter room big enough to put a child on heart-lung bypass? Or are the lines of sight correct for a nurse who now has to care for a patient, two patients in adjoining private rooms? Because that's the global trend to take patients into private rooms. Whereas before there were curtains and you could see if a patient fell out of bed or you could hear someone call for help. And in private rooms, you can't. So we're able to test all of these things by popping those uh, designs up in cardboard and running medical simulations. And when we do this, we don't only have the clinicians who are going to work in those spaces. We have infection control. We have environmental services, the people who are going to clean those rooms. Uh, we have the administrators who are going to fill those rooms. And we have the architects who, are, who are, are working on the plan. So everybody comes together and gets to participate in these simulations to make a better design. And we can move things around and redo that simulation a couple of times determine, to determine where are, where's the head wall, where should it be, where's the best place to put the doors. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention, we also have the patient's families represented. So the mom who spent three months in an ICU can say, hey, if the head wall isn't over by the window, my child wouldn't see the light of day. 
for three months. And we can take all of that into account into the construction of a new design. And we can also do it post-construction. So um, let's say you've remodeled your emergency room and you think you're ready for patients. You've stocked all your medications, you've trained all of your, your, your folks. And before the first patients come across the threshold, we come with simulated patients. And those clinicians will get a chance to work in that space in a less risky environment with with uh, maybe actors as the patients or mannequins. So they can see how loud it is to work in those rooms. And I know I don't have to tell you this, but you can get really smart people in a room and they can intellectualize how something's going to be used, but unless you actually do it, you don't know. And we were running a simulation uh, in an emergency room with a locked behavioral health ward and we had an actor playing the patient and we gave him the task of escaping. And so um, the actor was really great. He said, you know, if I, you're, you can wrestle me to the ground, you can have security put me in restraints, but if I say the word Ronald Reagan, that means we have to stop. So we said, okay, we start the, the simulation. And they put the actor in the room. And by protocol, the clinicians are all outside the room because when a patient's really agitated, you don't go in there with them. So uh, the first thing he does is he jumps from the bed up onto a windowsill. It's about eight feet high. And he sits there and he won't come down. And you can see everyone taking a note, mm, should slope should have sloped the windowsill, you know. And it's things like that that we can find out before they become a safety hazard. I think you already started answering my question, but as you were, as you were talking I was thinking what is the what's the return on investment? What's the ROI in all this? Is Absolutely. that you're measuring that obviously? We are, um, and it comes down to really concrete things like change orders um, that have to be made um, to the facility, taking the facility offline for however long it takes to make these adjustments, and then of course the construction costs um, for, for doing that. Um, but there can be other costs around the utilization of um, of the space um, and the um, hard to quantify costs of potential um, potential injury due to um, latent safety threat. So one of your colleagues, Peter Weinstock, um, uh, in a TED talk that he, that he gave recently, spoke about how there's a focus on analyzing performance after doing the simulations and finding out what worked and what didn't. So this debriefing uh, that, you're, that you're describing, can you talk about the value of this self-reflection for your culture, particularly in the physicians, and how it's it's changing people's behavior. Absolutely. So that's what this is all about: uh, is is changing behavior, and that's not an easy thing to do. And when simulation is done wrong, um, people feel beaten down. They feel uh, demoralized. But when simulation is done right the entire team feels like they're that much better. And um, so uh, I've seen examples in the military and examples in day-to-day -day life where simulation done wrong results in a team that's more dysfunctional. And uh, so when it is done right, uh, we are able uh, to mature teams style of communication, uh, mature their ability to handle situations. And, you know, being an engineer, I didn't appreciate this before I came to the hospital, so maybe I should give you an example. When a child is put on heart-lung bypass, start to finish, it might take maybe 20, 30 minutes. And it starts with a nurse 
who understands something's going wrong with a patient, who calls for help, and additional help is called. And then a decision is made to call the surgical team. Um, and um, for about 15 minutes, a new person's coming into the room uh, every minute. And when that happens, you have what's called the crisis resource manager. And that's a physician who do doesn't touch the patient. All they do is air traffic control. They orient everybody coming into the room as to the status of the patient, when med medications have been pushed, when they were pushed. And occasionally, they'll stop the entire team and they'll recount where they are and they'll ask if anybody has a different opinion about what's going to happen next. And they'll take a, a, a time out to do this. And these types of techniques enable these teams to make split-second decisions that could save a life. Um, and so the level of communication um, that is necessary in those moments really matter. You know, a medical simulation really got its start um, back in the in the 70s when there were these sentinel plane crashes. So there were these big airliners that crashed and they did critiques to find out why. And it wasn't because the pilots didn't know how to fly the planes. These were people who had passed military experience and combat experience even. It was actually because of miscommunications amongst the staff. Maybe it was a co-pilot that was afraid to say something to the pilot because the pilot held his career. Uh, maybe it was a flight attendant who didn't feel empowered to make a suggestion, right? And clinical teams are, are, are very, very similar, where everybody in that room has to feel empowered, no matter how junior they are, need to feel empowered to make an observation, and no matter how senior they are, need to be able to assimilate that information quickly. You've spoke about a lot of potential applications. I'm wondering, in your experience so far, what has been the most extreme application of medical simulation? Something that uh, either surprised you or really you feel pushed the boundaries of, of where it could go? As an engineer, I think the most surprising aspect of medical simulations is the level of realism that is achieved. So in our simulation center, uh, we go to Disney-esque length to make things real. So our simulated patients um, bleed and urinate and speak. And sometimes we use actors. And the level of realism um, that is elicited when you have an actor playing a patient or an actor playing uh, a, a parent is so real, uh, I have to look away. And when we first started working with the Hollywood special effects, I knew what I was looking at was not real. I knew that uh, this was not actual bowel, right? But I, I had to keep reminding myself of that. I actually had to look away. There were actually clinicians who asked, is that real or not? And um, to me, that's the most stunning aspect of this. Um, so one thing I'm curious about is how the, the medical simulation that you're doing now at Children's, uh, and is not, I know it's not being done at every institution. How is that affecting your brand or your perception within the marketplace? Are you, is Boston Children's perceived differently because of this work? Uh, and where do you think that might go? We are, um, and, uh, we are hired 
to travel internationally to help accelerate simulator programs in the same vein as ours. And we are joining forces with architecture firms who traditionally create cardboard mock-ups of their uh, of the spaces that they're designing, but haven't run medical simulations in them. We are creating uh, lifelike synthetic patients for the purposes of usability testing on new medical devices. We're renting our space for uh, to make movies, for explainer videos, for new devices um, that are going to hit the market. We're getting involved in so many very interesting and and um, and frankly, revenue generating for us because you know every simulation center is a cost center to the hospital, and it's um, in a time of uh, when you know money is tight, funding is tight. We're not quite sure uh, the future of of medical insurance and how things are going to be paid for. It's really important that we are able to connect with industry uh, to use the resources we have to. Uh, improve the situation um, for our industry partners and uh, to find ways to accelerate medical simulation in other hospitals in ways that um, can bring money back into the program. So let me give you an example. Uh, about Our program's about 12 years old. And um, Dr. Weinstock did something really really brilliant uh, when he started the program. He staffed it with all engineers. And he did that because he knew that the mannequins were getting more and more complex to run. So suddenly they could, um, they had breath sounds and suddenly um, uh, they had vital signs. So you needed a computer to be able to control all of these things. And about three years ago, one of the engineers said, you know, if we bought a 3D printer, we could print the actual patients these surgeons are going to operate on. And that spawned a whole new service for us, our 3D print service, where to this day, we now print about six actual patients, the actual piece of anatomy that's going to undergo surgery. And we give that to the surgeons so they can practice on it. And today I brought uh, here a, a spine so that I could explain a little bit about how that happens. Talk a little bit about this. So. What you're holding is a scoliosis patient's spine. And the first time that a surgeon would see the spine, traditionally, would be in the operating room once that child um, is undergoing surgery. But now we're able to hand this to the surgeon weeks before the surgery. They're able to pre-cut and bend the rods they're going to implant during the surgery. They're able to determine the fixation points for any screws. And this saves about 30 minutes per surgery at a time when there's blood loss, where anxiety is the greatest in the surgical team because they're really figuring out how to do things. And so we find not only are we able to save about 30 minutes per surgery, uh, but there are fewer complications. And this is an example uh, where you only have one specialty involved in the surgery, so that's orthopedics. But often we're making models of patients that require multiple specialties to engage. So it might require plastic surgery, neurosurgery, and ophthalmology all to come together around one patient. And when we give them the models of the patients to work on first, we can save three, four, five hours per surgery because they're able to pre-cut, make the actual cuts, 
um, that they would do in surgery. And you know what? Throw that model away, order another one, and try a different approach and perfect how they're going to go about um, that surgery when they do get in the OR. So I think you're getting to, uh, you're describing the state of the art, I assume, in this industry. Um, Where do you think it's going to go in the future? What technologies do you see coming online that will push what you're doing further or new methodologies that you haven't get engaged? I think uh, by far it's going to be augmented reality. And that's because we see how the surgeons use our simulated patients today. And for example, when we give them a 3D print, they'll actually sterilize the prints and take them into the OR with them. They'll refer to these prints during the surgery. And when they do that, they have to leave the patient, turn their back to the patient, walk over to the table where the print is in the OR. Someone else picks it up because, of course, they can't. Their hands, they, they can't use their hands to do that. And they'll bend over and they'll look at the model. And then they'll return to the patient. Uh, imagine a day where they can just look up and see a hologram of that model and by gesturing in the air without touching anything spin that model around and look in it um, and thereby giving them the x-ray vision imagine we could benchmark that to anatomical landmarks and actually uh, give them that x-ray vision to see what's behind where they're just about to make a cut you have a funny way of making a description about the future feel like you just did it so (laughs) um, that's pretty remarkable Uh, there's I, there's a part of me that just the design part of me just nerds out completely in what you're doing uh, and the melding of this credible craftsmanship with uh, with something that's so relevant and life-saving. Um, there aren't a lot of other industries that I think are doing that. Who do you look to outside of your own field for inspiration to kind of push your, yourselves forward? Yeah, I think it's... Um well, it's groups like yours, actually. Uh, we learn a lot by, by watching you. One of the things that uh, that's so special about working in a hospital is that we can bring together a lot of groups that don't normally talk to each other and bring those groups into the hospital environment. And isn't it fascinating to have the opportunity to bring industry and the people who are designing new devices to come in and speak with the clinicians who are gonna use those devices, to speak with the people who are gonna create or could create the next generation of teaching materials around how to use that device or deploy that device, uh, along with patients who are gonna receive care from it or, or parents who might eventually use it as well. It's an amazing opportunity to put the users first and make things um, human-centric. Earlier, Melissa, you you mentioned theater. And so I'm curious about how you use improvisational theater, where, where that comes from, and you as an engineer, how you're equipped to kind of lead the charge uh, in bringing this into such a highly regulated uh, setting like a children's hospital operating room. So but speak to that. The vision really came from our executive director, uh, Dr. Weinstock, and I'd encourage anybody to take a look at his TED Talk because it, it really demonstrates it so beautifully. But our team is all about uh, being the culmination of medicine and theater for the purposes of rehearsal. And just as in theater, things don't always go right. 
you have wardrobe malfunctions, you have um, things that don't function right, You've and everybody has to keep going, right? Um, and so it's the same in medical simulation. When our curtain goes up, when a medical scenario starts, our synthetic patient may not do what it's supposed to do. Um, our clinical team that's participating might choose to take uh, the scenario in a different direction. So we're, we're always on our toes. We're, our engineers are behind the scenes um, making it all happen. So if the facilitator in the other room is calling for us to change the vital signs and make that synthetic patient bleed, we're in the back starting uh, that blood flow. And if they say make it bleed more, we've got people squeezing bags behind the curtain, right? And um, we've got all this stuff going on just to make it real um, in, in front of the curtain. And the same thing happens uh, with the debriefings. So um, it takes somebody, a human factors expert, it takes debriefing uh, uh amazing debriefers who are, 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 are trained to do this, but uh, basically um, use principles of jazz to riff off of the emotion that's going on in the, in the team that's discussing what they just experienced in their simulation, um, to take that to places where um, that team might feel a little uncomfortable and to figure out ways to make it more comfortable. Um, so all along, um, we're riffing off of each other, whether it's the engineers who are, are making um, the technology happen or the debriefers who are helping facilitate the conversations where the real learning and behavior change occurs. I love this idea, but it's also frightening that as things go wrong, part of your job is to make them go even more wrong so that you can really learn from the outcomes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that, I think, pushes in a, pushes it very, very far. Um, into a scary zone. Oh, well, you know what? I think uh, a lot of people feel that way, and that's normal. And what we're all about is creating this notion of psychological safety where you can you can feel energized by that, where you can channel that scariness into a feeling of, this is going to make me better. This, this is going to make my me, you know, a top player. This is going to make my team on their A game. And it can take that fear and turn it into something really thrilling and amazing. Melissa, thank you so much for coming in. I'm really excited to see where you go next with all of this and, and where, where your Imagine and your amazing technology take us. Thank you again. Thank you. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Melissa and Lee for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Thank you.